Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Today's the last day of the season. Tomorrow begins a new era for the Mets. At noon tomorrow, the Mets will introduce David Stearns as the new president of baseball operations. And task one for David will be to hire a new manager. Buck Showalter announcing today that he and the Mets have parted ways after two seasons. Well, I think these are very sobering uh, days. It always uh, harks back to when I was a player and DFA'd. Um, now you have a manager who publicly now, in all the tabloids and all the pundits, will discuss his last couple of years. Manager of the year two years ago, 180 wins about the last couple of years, not good enough with this new baseball ops te- uh, team coming in. And I don't know, it, it's just, it's a sad day. It's always a sad day when publicly you have to let go of a manager. There's only 30 teams. Bucks managed 22 years with five different teams. He's won four Manager of the Year awards. He's never gotten the brass ring, though, and he thought he had a real good chance with this team, and it just didn't happen. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, October the 1st, 2023. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can show up on podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. You can get me on Instagram, TalkingMetsNoG. And I want to welcome in the good folks from the Fan-Sided Podcasting Network, as well as RisingApple.com. Well, that's a wrap on the 2023 baseball season, at least for the New York Mets. An eventful day out in City Field. I nearly came to you this morning, and I said, eh, let me at least let the season finish out. And good thing I did, because the whole show would have had to be changed if I if I had done that. Uh, Buck Showalter let go, oh, just about right before game time. We'll talk about that. Daniel Murphy was in town this weekend. I think there's some lessons to be learned from Murphy and maybe even David Stearns, who might be the smartest guy in the room from what I keep getting told, could maybe learn from Murphy in Mets history. We'll get into that. Milestones, you had a couple of milestones this week, namely Francisco Lindor, the 30-30 club, what do milestones mean going forward? Are we seeing them be de-emphasized? I took a little bit of a look into that, and we'll get into all the questions that we had post-deadline when it was really just a reboot of the getting-to-know-you phase with the New York Mets, and we'll chat about that. But to start out, as I reflected on the last day of the season, and unfortunately, us as Mets fans have had plenty of these non-postseason last day of the seasons It's almost like the last day of school where you're there to empty out your locker and get the heck out of there, as you know. Uh, We've had this familiar feeling is, I'll be honest with you, a familiar feeling of sadness. 
really comes down to it. And what an appropriate background the whole week with how miserable for the last week the weather was. I mean, I'm not even going to get into the, the playing conditions on the field and Miami and all their discontent and what the Mets grounds crew did and didn't do. I don't care about that. But what an appropriate background because baseball, and we talked a little bit about this last year after the Mets were eliminated by the Padres, baseball is this thing that's in our lives from if you're fanatical like all of us who are listening to this, from about Valentine's Day when pitchers and catchers report, all the way, if your team goes deep, to a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving. It encompasses the end of winter, spring, summer, the beginning of fall. And after you go through the hot stove and the holidays and then that post-Christmas, post-New Year downer that you get because the, you know your area is all lit up with lights and festivities and yeah, it's cold and the winter's here, but there's that bustling about the holidays. You know, January, that January 2nd or January 1st, post-New Year, all the way to pitchers and catchers, especially if you're in the Northeast. And, and because we didn't get any snow last year, I'm sure it's going to be as cold as you know what this year. We're going to get pounded, and you and I are going to be, you know, doing a lot of hot, hot stove with hot chocolate by this microphone this off season. You have that period of time where, it's kind of depressing, I'll be honest with you. You know, the weather stinks. It, it, you know, it's dark most of the day. You leave the house in dark. You come home in dark. You can't wait for spring. You're tired of the, you know, the holidays are over. You're tired of the winter. By February 1st, you can't wait for winter to be over, especially if you get a lot of snow. And this is kind of like a reminder of what's to come and somewhat of a, of a sunset, a sunset of a season. And each night, you have Gary, Keith, and Ron, Howie Rose, Keith Rad, who did a great job his first year, Pat McCarthy, you know, some new voices that the Mets have incorporated into their booths on the radio. And, you know, regardless of what the team does, this is part of your life every night. Even if you check out after a couple of innings, it's something to talk about. You have that social network. You're on Twitter. You're on Facebook. You hang out with your friends. You go to ball games. You tailgate. And that camaraderie, I mean, there's, you know, let's face it. We all have busy lives. You're working, you have families, you got a lot going on. You don't have this infinite amount of time to socialize. For some of us, the ballpark, whether it be virtually on Twitter and watching from home or going to, you know, certain amount of ball games is our social circle. And I think even you and I, even though we don't know each other per se, I've corresponded with many of you over email, maybe met a couple of you. We've had some fans on the show. We've developed a connection, and I'll still be here. I'll be here every week. You know, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not saying goodbye. But I really think the way I would start a closing time show is to really look at what today is. It's really like that last day of school. You're there. You're supposed to be doing schoolwork, but you're really there to say goodbye, get your books out of your locker, and get the heck out. And there's a certain amount of sadness now. When I was in school, it was like I couldn't wait for it to be over. I was like, ah, it's been a grind. But you accomplished a lot. You grew a lot as as an individual. And maybe for some of us, and I know I fall into this category, when you go through a baseball season, things happen in your life. And if the team does certain things, you connect it to your personal experience in your life. And there's a certain amount of sadness, you know, not being able to go to the ballpark and what have you. So that was kind of like the way I woke up this morning. I've been thinking about that over the last few days. And uh, and then we get thrown with, again, you know, we've seen this movie play out in 2018 and 2019 and during the pandemic craziness of 2020 and 2021. We're heading into another offseason 
of change and somewhat un of uncertainty, a situation that we did not think as the pitch as pitchers and catchers reported back in February that we would be facing going into the offseason of 2023 into 2024. I mean, look, if anybody told you that the wild card would take about 85 wins and the Mets wouldn't be able to muster 85 wins after, forget Correa. I mean, even when Correa, the situation fell off the cliff, you would be laughed at, you know, and, and that's exactly where we're at. So Buck is gone, but, and we'll get to that. I have a lot of thoughts about that, but what did we learn? You know, let me start there. What did we learn? I had come to you after Scherzer and Verlander were traded and I said, you know, there's a few things we're going to learn about this club. And I expected them basically to, you know, lose 90 games. They nearly did. I know that there's this suspended game that might mean they'll win, what, 75 games? So they finished with about 75 wins. You know, they were a little bit better than you would expect. But look, after that six-game losing streak, right after they tore the team apart, where they had that hangover, this was basically a 500 club, a club that pitched better. I mean, they have the fifth best starting pitching since August 1st in baseball. That's crazy when you think about it, with names like Lucchese, McGill, Buto, Peterson in the rotation. Yeah, you have Quintana. Yes, yeah, Singa had a lot to do with that when he pitched at a very, very high level throughout the last few weeks. But who would have thought that? Two Hall of Famers out the door, no Scherzer, no Verlander, and they're achieving this? That's crazy when you think about it. You still have these core offensive players. You know, Alonzo reminded you that he's still... A very elite power hitter. He brings a lot to the table. Lindor made history 30-30. He joins a very rare club. A club that's growing, but a rare club. Jeff McNeil, yeah, he had some injuries. It turns out he wasn't all healthy all the time throughout the bulk of the season. He started to return to form and show you that he's still Jeff McNeil. And Brandon Nimmo, again, an elite run creator, elite leadoff hitter, uh, you know, in his prime, you know, did what he normally does. All of these guys are in their prime. And then maybe Alvarez is going to join them as here he is. I think he's just behind Johnny Bench in terms of home runs for a catcher under the age of 21. So you still have some you know, strong core of offensive players and maybe somebody joining them. And you have some really good. I mean, what you learned about the rotation is there's some really solid mid-rotation arms in Quintana and Singa. Maybe Singa's a switch better. You certainly could... Pencil in a competition for the back end of the rotation with Lucchese, McGill, Butu again, strong today, Peterson. There's going to be a competition if these guys are back in the spring, and that's a lot of depth, and that's a good thing to have. I mean, think about the concerns that teams have. You need those 8, 9, 10 starters. Mets might have four very interesting guys that could give them a lot to think about when they're in Port St. Lucie come March, and that's that's a good thing. Uh, and I bet you had no idea that the starting pitching was that good since August 1st because I didn't. Now, outside of Alvarez, there's still a lot of questions. We didn't get a lot of our questions about the kids answered. We don't know what to think of Mauricio. He's dynamic. He shows some really interesting uh, you know, offensive trends. Maybe he doesn't have a position, but he's interesting. Beatty does not look like a big leaguer. Vientos does not look like he could consistently hit. And he strikes out way too much. You know, he's very, very iffy. All the kids outside of Alvarez are iffy. And at least Alvarez, who really had a season where he had those great uh, peaks, those really horrible valleys. But throughout, I'll give the kid credit. He was able to maintain a defensive profile. Now, it's not the same defensive profile that you need, like pre-pitch clock and bigger bases and things like that. But who would have thought that 
what really impressed me most about Alvarez would be his defense. I never had that on the bingo card, I'll tell you that. But for the first time, and I think this is where I would sum where the Mets are at going into David Stern's press conference tomorrow at noon. For the first time since Sandy, Sandy Alderson took over in 2010, we really don't know where this Mets team is going. We have more questions than answers. And Billy Epler wasn't lying when he said that Vegas would look kindly upon the Mets going into spring training 2024, even though there was some debate over fire sale, non-fire sale. Are they contending? Are they taking a step back? But what we know is, and I know this, I feel pretty confident in saying this, is that no matter what they do this offseason, there is going to be a component and a big component of the 2024 Mets that we will go into spring training not knowing what to expect, and our attitude will be, let's sit back and watch. And I will tell you even further, this year the getting-to-know-you phase as you build the team in the first third of the season was about these veterans kind of working themselves in the shape after the WBC and figuring out the pitch clock. That's over. The pitch clock and all that stuff, it's not even a factor. You are going to be truly getting to know, potentially, some young players with no resume that are going to be asked to take on, possibly, an important role in the 2024 Mets. And a 2024 Mets team that we've been told, and we'll see what David Stern says tomorrow, that plans on competing to be in the tournament, plans on to compete for a playoff spot. And what we're going to learn is this. Can you rebuild and win at the same time? Because that's what really the Mets are doing. Will the Mets have patience and let the kids develop? How much patience will they have with the kids? What prospects, and I'll tell you what, this may be something that very quickly comes down. What prospects are you going to keep? What prospects are you going to hug? Because Juan Soto, if he's available, he ain't going to come cheap. I have no idea why Shohei Otani would come to this club now that they don't have a manager. I have no idea. Why would you Why would you even think, yeah, maybe the Mets will offer the most money I've seen reports, but what would make you think that? And Yamamoto, maybe, maybe he doesn't want to come into what looks like a very uncertain situation. It's going to be hard to sell everybody on this because Cohen is now on his third manager. He inherited Rojas, fine, fired him, Buck took over. Now he Buck's on him. That's his hire, along with Epler. And now he's on his third manager. So this idea of stability since Cohen took over, that's a falsehood. The last time the Mets and you really knew where they were going was when Alderson took over in 2010. You knew they were going into baseball purgatory and rebuilding. He was honest about it. They truly didn't. They did a half measure rebuild because they kept right and Reyes. Conversation not for today. And they were a little lucky with their rebuild because some of the assets that were left over for the Manaya regime turned out to be a boon on the pitching side. And ever since the Mets won a pennant, and it's ironic, on a weekend when Daniel Murphy was in town, retiring, saying goodbye to Mets fans, remembering that great run in 2015 that seems like yesterday, but it's nearly a decade ago. After that last out, the Royals won the championship on City Field soil. The Mets were chasing relevancy with the clock ticking on their starting rotation from that point forward. Once the pandemic hit and the Syndergaards of the world went kablooey and Wheeler walked out the door and DeGrom broke down and Harvey was no longer relevant, the Mets have basically for the last couple of years been trying to use a new owner, the wealthiest owner in the sports checkbook, to put together the 1997 Marlins so they could have some glory while they were trying to rebuild 
and create their own sustainable Los Angeles Dodgers run type of team. And it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. And, you know, this, I hear a lot of people say this was one of the worst seasons in Mets history, one of the more frustrating seasons in Mets history. I don't know about that. I can tell you that from a standpoint of watching baseball, it wasn't the most fun season. I felt very disconnected from this team a lot. I found this team being more of a chore to watch. And I truly feel there was a hangover from Atlanta and San Diego last year. A hangover that got worse when Diaz crumpled down in a pile in Miami during the WBC. And quite honestly, with all the other stuff going on with the pitch clock and and the injuries and whatnot, it was a team that really never got themselves going. Now, I can't argue with them ripping it apart and building up the farm system, using Cohen's money to basically pay for prospects. I'm not going to argue with them on that. But when you look at those final wild card standings, and you see a team like Miami that played pretty much as I predicted because I felt they were good enough with their pitching. I said this last year when they lost all those one-run games to be a slog of a low 80s win team that you're not going to be comfortable playing. When you see those win totals of Arizona and Miami, and you say to yourself, man, at 50 and 55 or wherever they were around the deadline or when they, they traded David Robertson, I don't see why with keeping the band together, they couldn't have maybe added a couple of bullpen arms and made a run at it. Now, water under the bridge, and it would have been a risk because you would have sat here and would have had tons more questions, especially if Scherzer was injured because then you were going to be banking on him to come back. And right now, I think they're in a better place for a reboot than they would have been if they had held on to everybody. So I'm not going back and crying over spilt milk. But I will tell you, when David Stearns takes the podium tomorrow, I'm not here to to bow at his altar. This isn't Bill Parcells coming to the Jets. This isn't Pat Riley taking over the Miami Heat. This isn't Branch Rickey coming to town. Okay, this guy has a nice resume. I'm sure he's a smart guy. He is, if you wanted to talk about him in terms of, of ball player acquisition, he's probably the best free agent acquisition in the front office that you could get. The Mets got their man, and maybe he'll go down as the Mets version of Theo Epstein who breaks this you know, pseudo-curse because not everybody agrees with me saying that the yoke is a curse, and he'll go down, and he'll go down in Mets history as you know, the kid from Manhattan, the kid who grew up a Mets fan, the kid that was an intern that came in, swooped in, saved the franchise, and got them to the next step with the richest owner in the sport. Maybe he will be. But as far as now, I see a guy coming in that has a ton, a ton of work ahead of him. A lot of questions, including his his own performance questions. And his first move, and I understand what Cohen is saying. I heard Cohen's press conference. You want to give the president of baseball operations autonomy to bring in his own people. Now, he didn't do that with Epler. Epler seemed to be part of the deal. And it might make sense because you want to integrate into this front office, have somebody who knows a little bit about what's been going on the last couple of years. So maybe that makes more sense than the field manager. But what I don't understand is that you have this wealth of baseball knowledge in the dugout, a manager that clearly the players like. I mean, look at the send-off. I mean, did Gabe Kapler, when he was fired, get those kind of send-offs? I don't think so when he was fired the other day. How many managers have you seen get that kind of send-off that he got today? 
And, you know, a guy that overnight in the middle of a lockout turned the Mets into a a polished, well-run team on the field and took a bunch of guys who were mercenaries and signed contracts that didn't know the organization at all to 100 wins and the playoffs. To not think that that guy could help you at least for another year while you figure out a ton of stuff, I think is short-sighted. To me, it smells like Stearns, like there's no way I'm coming into this job in this market and being saddled with someone else's manager. I need to make my imprint on the organization right away. And because he couldn't make the imprint with the general manager, he had, this is me speculating, he had to make the imprint with the manager. I bet you Cohen said, look, the manager is on you. You can do whatever you want, but Billy's got to stay until you decide he doesn't. Billy's at least got to get a shot. That's my feeling on how it went down because it doesn't make sense. If you're saying that this move was made because the president wants to come in and have his own people, then that works for everybody, including Epler. And I'm sure there's going to be changes. Now, look, what does that mean for Hefner and and his work with the pitchers? I don't know. It'll be interesting to see where they go with the coaching staff. I got to tell you, I'd keep Joey Cora around. The Mets haven't had this kind of third base coach in forever. So I'd, you know, consider keeping around. And I, I wonder where they're going to go manager-wise. You know, is it, you know, internal? Is it Eric Chavez who has said he has eyes on being a manager? You know, is Carlos Beltran's name back in the mix? Wouldn't that be a kick in the you-know-what? That four years later, after all this nonsense, he's back where we're back where they were going to be four years ago. Or do they go out? Or there's a possibility of counsel being available? I mean, geez, God help us if it's Gabe Kapler. I can't. I mean, but here's what I will say. Buck leaving today wasn't just about the end of an era, maybe in Buck's career. But I know the Astros won the division, but you can see the Sharks circling the wagon with Dusty out in Houston. And Girardi was fired over a year ago. And who knows how long, you know, Bochy's going to last out there in Texas. I mean, they had their own little collapse, right? You know, Bochy, a well-respected manager. But there is a war right now on the traditional old-school manager, a guy that didn't grow up in analytics, doesn't have any opposition to them, but was an you know embraces analytics on a more granular level, and somebody who has wealth and experience of people skills and old-school managerial skills, it is clear to me that the new generation of uh, front office types and the media want these guys out. They don't want to cover them anymore. They don't want to deal with them anymore. They want Dave Roberts. They want Gabe Kapler. They want those type of guys. They want what Art Howe was in Oakland. That middle manager that takes the lineup card from the front office and just does his duty. Now, I believe there's still guys out there, Alex Cora comes to mind, who have the ability to do both. And I hope that the Mets, as they do their due diligence on hiring a manager, really put in the player interaction, the people skill interaction that goes into the job. Look at what's going on with the Yankees with their pitching coach, uh, Matt Blake, who it reports are the players don't even listen to. You can't just bring somebody in that knows how to interpret data and new age philosophy to these guys. They need to know that they have somebody that they can connect with. And I've said, and Buck did all of these things well. I don't care what you say. They have to manage the clubhouse well. He clearly did that. They have to manage the media well. He did that, despite the fact that they didn't always agree with them. He handled them masterfully. And they have to manage a bullpen. And you don't like how he managed the bullpen this year. That's fine. 
he didn't really have the same resources and assets that he had last year. And I'll tell you what, that bullpen in 2022 that did well, thank you, Diaz, changed a lot, was a little shallow too, and he did an outstanding job. Outstanding job. And some of that was how he was able to space out rest. Some of that was understanding what he had on the inside of the player, not just through the analytics. And I think a lot of that has to do with communication and a wealth of experience that goes back to Billy Martin. Billy Martin that goes back to Casey Stengel. And Casey Stengel's knowledge that pretty much goes back to the beginning of baseball, if you really want to put it frank. So I think this was a bad move. I say David Stearns is 0 for 1. I would have kept everything together. I would have evaluated this organization. I wouldn't have come in and torched the manager. That is his right. I say this is the first bad move that Stearns has has done. I'm very curious which direction he goes. And I'm going to tell you this right now, guys. And this isn't me being negative. I've already seen it on Twitter. I am not here to drink of the chalice of David Stearns. I am not impressed by four playoff appearances in Milwaukee. I don't care. I don't care that he interned for the Mets. I don't care that he grew up on the Upper East Side. I don't care about any of that. I want to see a well-run, competent organization that has a plan, goes out, and executes it and sustains it. And I think Buck would have been, or a manager like Buck, would be one of those type of people that, quite honestly, should be part of that solution. And the fact that he's not is disappointing. So I'm very curious to hear what Stearns has to say. And look, he's not going to lose the press conference tomorrow. Nobody loses a press conference, and this kid ain't going to lose a press conference. He is the darling of the media. But before we say he's Theo Epstein, because he's not, and he ain't even Billy Bean. He's not. He hasn't proven any of that. Let's see what he's got. Because the clock starts now. 12 o'clock tomorrow, the clock starts. And we want answers. None of this half measures. Well, maybe we'll do this, and maybe we'll do that, and we'll win if this, and probabilistic that. You know, that's the kind of stuff that Billy Epler's gotten away with, and you know what? Fine. He's now doing the grunt work. We'll see how they divide the, the responsibilities. I want to know tomorrow. What's the plan for 2024? Are you planning on competing and going to the tournament? Or if you're talking about taking a step back, why even keep these in-prime offensive players? Why keep Alonzo? Why keep McNeil? Why keep Nimmo? Shoot. Think about trading Lindor. What, are you going to waste three years of their prime on them just putting up hollow numbers, playing for a bad team? I got to say, with what I laid out to you at the beginning of the intro— with the core offensive players, with Diaz coming back, with some good mid-rotation pieces, and even possibly some depth with the guys like Buto, etc., that showed their wares over the last few weeks, you should have enough to be able to put together an 85-win team. Or better yet, I can't see why, if this guy is so smart, and with this owner's checkbook, even while they're rebuilding, they don't want to go out and go and swim in the deep end of the pool, they don't want to get involved with Otani, fine. They should be able to put together a team that can win 88 to 90 games, and that should be enough to at least be in the conversation in the final two weeks of September. And if this guy can't do it with this group that he's got now, then there's a problem. And if he doesn't think he can, then he might as well rip the whole darn thing apart, and we'll start our five-year rebuild, and we'll hear about this guy for five years while they lose 95 games, and we could talk about the draft every year, and God only knows when it's going to be relevant baseball around City Field. I will tell you, they drew 2.5, 2.6 million fans this year. For a team that made the playoffs and won 100 games, that's low. That's low. They should be drawing 3 million fans. But we know about the economy. Nobody wants to talk about that. We know about how expensive things are. We talked about ticket prices last week. 
Nobody's coming out to this building unless they go on the secondary market and they buy it from someone who's taking a bath at 60 to 70 plus below face to come see a team that's David Stern's marketing rebuild. Not interested in that. If they want to do both, and it's hard because they've shown how hard it is to do both, I'm interested in that. And the other thing they better really seriously think about, one of the first things you better seriously think about, better get serious about who these prospects are. Because I have to tell you, other than Alvarez, I haven't been impressed with one of them. Brett Beatty has been the worst number two prospect I've seen come through these doors in a long time. I don't know how he made it on anybody's list. He stinks. He can't even feel the ground ball. You guys saw it the other day against Miami. Vientos is striking out over 30-something percent of the time. Mauricio, we'll see. I'm not ready to, you know, make a declaration one way or the other, but to me, he looks more like trade bait. You know, Soto get. There's nobody, and I'll tell you, even you know, I possibly with Parada coming up the way, you know, maybe even look at Alvarez. You know, if Soto's available, you got to seriously think: can any of these kids entice the Padres? Probably not, but you definitely have to think about it. But that's another story for another day. So, anyway, let's take a quick break. When we come back. Francisco Lindor, 30-30 club. What do milestones mean? Because we have bigger bases, a pitch clock, pitchers can't throw over. Are we going to start to see what we see in the NFL with offense changing the game because they've loosened the rules? Is this now the post-NBA where nobody's allowed to play defense, where everybody shoots three-pointers? Can we just pencil 30-30 in for a bunch of players every year and diminish the whole thing? We'll talk about that more right after this. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. And there's Lindor hitting one deep to right. His second of the day heads toward the wall. It's out of here. 30-30 for Francisco Lindor. Only the fourth Met ever to have a 30 home run, 30 steal season. Lindor hits his second of the game, his third of the doubleheader. Number 30 for Lindor to tie up the game. Well, congratulations to Francisco. What an accomplishment and a fantastic year. Daryl Strawberry, Howard Johnson three times, David Wright, and now Francisco Lindor, the Mets who have had 30 home run, 30 stolen base seasons. We're back, so you heard it. You guys know about it. Francisco Lindor, 30-30, joins uh, Hojo, David Wright, and Strawberry in an exclusive Mets club. I remember when Hojo and Strawberry did it, what a big deal it was back in 1987, especially for Hojo, who uh, was a switch hitter. When you look at, you know, it really validates putting Hojo in the Mets Hall of Fame. When you look at the history of 30-30, what a guy like Barry Bonds doing it five times, his dad doing it five times, Alfonso Soriano doing it four Hojo's next on that list with three. And, you know, he very easily could have had a fourth if he had had a better, you know, maybe 80, 88 campaign 
and maybe didn't fall off the, you know, 88 and 90, they were a little bit, they were good years for Hojo, but a little bit down. Be amazing. Hojo was one of those guys that is mentioned the same breath with some of these elite clubs that are uh, in play. But, um, you know, when I first saw and I, I looked at the numbers, you know, over the last few weeks as certain players were going for their their milestones and you look at like Acuna, who's 40-40, right? So that's another level altogether. But you have Julio Rodriguez, Bobby Witt, Lindor, Acuna, all doing 30-30 or better seasons. And I said to myself, you know, I think when you look at what the new rules achieved, this was my first reaction. When you look at what the new rules achieved, pitch clock, tires the pitchers out a little bit, forces them to focus a little bit more on delivering the ball, less on the runner, the number of pickoffs being reduced to, to, to two before the third. You have to either go over or get a bulk. I think that has much to do with the drop in time in game than anything because you can't throw over seven times. You can't come to the set and step off all these times. I think that that had something more to do than the pitch clock, I have to say. I really believe that. The bigger bases, all that stuff. And, you know, you guys all know what's been going on with the baseballs, ballparks getting shrunk, although that's changing a little bit with places like Baltimore and San Diego and even City Field over the years trying to actually make their ballparks bigger to make them more fair for the pitching. But when you look at the ball being messed around with and smaller ballparks and more teams and driveline and everybody throwing as hard as they can until their arm blows out. Nobody wants nobody wants to throw strikes. It's all about velocity. More walks than ever. Three, two counts more than ever, even with the pitch clock. It all leads into more offense. And I said to myself, well, this is just like what the NBA has done since the mid-90s, which is put the rules against the defender, put it put them in favor of the offensive player for entertainment value. In the NFL, I mean, you could you can't breathe on a receiver sometimes. It's pass interference. So there's all these records of passing yards. I mean, Dan Marino probably would do double that amount. I mean, Dan, Dan Marino was putting up these pinball numbers when it was a defensive game back in the 80s. So, when I, you know, that was what came to my mind. But when you start to look a little bit at what was achieved this year, I said, you know, maybe they changed the rules and they just had to supersede the analytics BS that started the trend of less stolen bases and less action and more deliberate baseball by basically legislating against it. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Analytics put cold, hard numbers in front of us uh, about a decade ago, a little bit more, but it became more mainstream about a decade ago where stolen bases were too risky. It was about launch angle and hitting home runs. Strikeouts didn't matter. Three, two counts to get the pitcher out of the game. Walks are, are good. Money ball, blah, 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 blah. And as teams, and we all know sports is a copycat league, as teams sort work for the Red Sox, the Yankees, the Rays with their success, Everybody started to copy it. And then the media got on board. And a lot of these guys that were part of the, you know, baseball prospectus and analytics revolution, all these Bill James disciples started getting jobs in front office and jobs in media. It almost became, well, you have to do this or else you're not part of our new. You know, it's about being part of a new club. It's about pushing the old club out, the old good old boy network out and putting a new one in. It's not it's the same version. It's a different thing of the same version. 
So they diminished contact, they diminished stolen bases, they threw pace of play into the garbage. And let me tell you, they they basically, all the nuance that made baseball a fun game, they took it away and they harmed the product where one of their own, Theo Epstein, worked with the league to figure out how to undo the stuff that he took part in creating back when he took over the Red Sox in 2004. So as I looked at that, then I said, well, let me see how many stolen bases were there this year in the entire league. This year, there were 3,400 stolen bases. That's as of this morning. I didn't count anything today. Now, when David Wright was 30-30 in 2007, how many stolen bases? About 500 less, a little over 2,900. Okay, that's different, but... I'm not satisfied yet. And by the way, this is my old, my good old back of the paper bag math. You're not seeing me sitting here with all spreadsheets and graphs and, and, and doing, you know, this statistical sample size that, you know, would make, you know, Bill James blush. That's not what's going on here at Talking Mets Podcast headquarters. So back in 1987, when both Strawberry and, 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 and Hojo got 30-30, and yeah, you had the Cardinals running like crazy, and the Expos did too back then. Tim Raines and whatnot, but there. Let's look at the whole league. You had thirty-five over thirty-five hundred stolen bases. Actually, more stolen bases in nineteen eighty-seven, and a year where there was a ton of home runs. By the way, with a juice ball, some some have talked about back then than there are today. So you really look at it and say, well, if it was okay in eighty-seven, nobody was wringing their hands and there was no pitch clock and you could throw over as much as you want. Why is there a big deal? And maybe those guys are right. So basically. When I start to see, and I look at this, and I say, okay, there have been, in the history of baseball, 40, uh, let's see, 69 30-30 plus seasons. And Willie Maitland, here's the crazy part, when you look at it. You had Acuna, Witt, Rodriguez, you have four of them. Four of them this year. And when you start to look at the history of baseball, you know, Bonds and the Bonds father-son, Soriano, they have, you know, with Hojo, you know, quarter of them are from like four guys. And now you have this year, I mean, there's been no other year. I mean, in 97, you had Mondesi, you had Bagwell. Uh, you never had like four in one season, the way I look. You had Brandon Phillips, you had Jimmy Rollins, you had Dave Wright, maybe you had three. And You've had some seasons with three, but this year stood out. This year stood out in a big way. And although I'd like to sit here and tell you, hey, the rules have something to do with it. And I want to diminish the 30-30 because somebody's going to say that. That's going to be talked about. Statistically, that's not true. Now, our home runs up, even from 87, a home run year, home runs are up. You're probably looking at another 1,000 to 1,500 home runs from the heyday. You know, you go to the steroid era, I'd have to look at some of those 98, 99 Maguire Sosa seasons. But, you know, home runs are up. They've had ebbs and flows. A lot of that is the baseball at some seasons. A lot of that now is that everybody, as they build themselves with strength and conditioning and with the way they swing, everybody swings the bat for a home run. That's why really no lead is, is safe anymore, even in baseball. I mean, when you were up 5-2 back in the day, I mean, how many people could jack a three-run home run in a, in, on a team? Really not many. So if you were able to navigate a lineup, you didn't have to worry about the ball flying out. So you walk a batter here or there. It's still going to take a couple of hits to get back in the game. No, the eight hitter could jack a three-run home run. So the home runs, that's been going on for years. But now with the rules, the other things like the stolen bases are coming into play. Now the thing what you can take from this 
is that maybe as they take a step back, these front offices, and they see what happens, they can say, hey, we need to incorporate more of this into our game. There's still a ton of teams that weren't running a lot, that stole 50, 60 bases themselves, that didn't believe in it. I did not see the crazy... I I thought this was going to become carnival between the bigger bag and the stolen base and the guy not being able to throw over. I just kept saying, you know, this is going to become carnival. But I think a lot of times... Players still lack confidence. You still have catchers with strong arms. And, you know, personally, I think they could have done everything but the bigger base. The bigger bases bother me. I know they talk about safety and everything. I kind of think that was overrated. But, again, I'm not down on the field. You'd have to talk to somebody who's down there a little bit. Uh, I thought that, you know, they could have just done the pitch clock and everything else would have worked themselves out. But I was wrong. You know, the, the, the throwing over to the base, I think, had a lot to do with the shorter game. And look, all these things have to be put in. I'm sorry, because analytics and those that have subscribed to it always are looking for what's called market inefficiencies and how they can exploit gaps that the game presents to win. That's their job. They're not there, and it's unfortunate, to worry about the byproduct of what that does to the watchability and the nuance and the future of the game. They basically were destroying the game. What used to be, hey, the Yankees and Red Sox of four hours became everybody's four hours. Everybody's Yankees, Red Sox. And you can't have a sport like that. But I will say this. It doesn't diminish what Lindor did. It doesn't diminish what Acuna did. And I fully expect, unless he gets hurt, Acuna's probably going to pass Barry Bonds. And as far as we know, he's clean. And actually, when Bonds did it, It was probably pre-steroids because Bond's steroid years, he wasn't exactly running the bases. He was a blimp. Yeah, I've always said I thought Bonds was a better player, more complete player on both sides of the ball when he was with the Pirates in his early San Francisco years, but specifically with the Pirates because he was a gold glove fielder. He hit for power. He had speed. He was more complete till he became Andre the Giant with the baseball bat. So... Uh, I think Lindor deserves a ton of credit. I think anybody who says these stats are hollow or out of their minds. Lindor has proven himself. He is an elite glove. He is a very good, solid bat. You know, maybe he does it in a way where, you know, he's a little streaky at times. I know some people don't feel he's a leader. Uh, He's more of a leader by example. I think a lot of that stuff tends to get a little overblown. I think this is a guy that when you watch him play short this year, you saw the athleticism. This is the best Mets shortstop since Ray Ordonez. I would give Ordonez a tick above on the defense, but when you put everything together, not only is he the best shortstop in Mets history, but on terms of both sides of the ball, you could put him in the conversation as a talent in terms of talent right up there with Beltron. I've always said I thought Strawberry and Beltron. On both sides of the ball, probably the cream of the crop positional-wise in Mets history. You want to throw right in there? I think right defensively wasn't quite there. You know, Strawberry, there was other issues, effort, etc. Off the field, drugs, all that stuff, alcohol, that probably diminished some of what he could have accomplished on both sides of the ball. But Beltron, Strawberry, and I'll put Lindor right there. I'll put Lindor right there. And he's proved it this year. Proved it more than ever. And, you know, I am not going to be the one to sit here and say that the rules have watered down the offense. I do not think it's like the NBA. I do not think it's like the NFL. I think it's a situation where a necessary evil had to be implemented to save organizations 
from themselves because the data and the information and all the things that are now available that weren't in 1987 can't be ignored, so you have to legislate against them. That's just the way the world is. And I understand it now. I get it now. I see why Rob Manfred hired Theo Epstein. You had to hire Frankenstein to figure out how to kill Frankenstein, if that makes sense. So anyway, let's take a quick break. Final segment, we'll wrap up. Daniel Murphy was in the building. And I'll tell you what, we could learn a lot from Daniel Murphy. And I think David Stearns needs to take a hard lesson. And if you don't learn history, you don't read about history, you're destined to repeat it. And I think the Mets do not want to repeat Daniel Murphy again because I got to tell you, that was a big L on the organization. And I, who advocated for it, need to take a big L on that. So let's take a quick break, wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. That ball's well hit to right. Did he get all of this one? Yes, he did. That's in the air to right. That's pretty deep. That ball is gone. Daniel Murphy has struck again. Free zone. And this ball is drilled to right center field. It is deep. Man alive. Dave Daniel Murphy has homered for the fifth straight postseason game. A 1-1. In the air. Deep right center field. That ball is gone. Daniel Murphy has homered in six straight postseason games. Nobody's ever done it before. Adbury. Science fiction. It's not really happening. Can't be. Eight years with this organization, the organization that drafted you. What What is it about the connection of these fans, this fan base that, that means so much to you? I think some of it is like you go through, the, you go through your career as a young player and they, the fans here allowed me to make mistakes. I feel like that, that hopefully they saw that like this guy runs the bases like he's invisible, but doesn't always catch the ball, but he seems to want to play hard and cheer his teammates on. And, and, and I can't, I really appreciate how embraced um, myself and my family were. And that's what I take from it. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. You heard from Daniel Murphy. You heard some great highlights from the 2015 postseason. Seems like yesterday. So Murph is at City Field. And I know there's been some criticism of the Mets with, you know, honoring Bartolo Colon and, you know, maybe bringing back Murphy. But these are fun things. These are things that, yes... When you're out of the pennant race, when it's you can't draw flies to the stadium, it's a way to get people to come to the ballpark. Nothing wrong with that. It's not like they're bringing back Steve Beezer or Kelvin Torve here. And if you don't know who those guys are, then look them up on Baseball Reference. I'm throwing you some random Mets to uh, look back on. But I think there was a couple of things from what Murphy said, and then I was a little bit reflective on Murphy myself because I think it ties into where we are today and and what is on my mind as David Stearns takes the podium tomorrow 
at City Field. First, you heard what Murphy said in the clip when he was being interviewed by Gelbs. And if you go online, you should hear the whole interview. I thought Gelbs did a nice job. I thought Murphy uh, was transparent, was honest, was humbled, and comes across as a really good guy. A guy that got criticized sometimes here because of personal beliefs he had on certain things that they roped him into conversation about. And, uh, you know, I think people made judgments about Murphy because they didn't necessarily believe in some of the same things he believed in uh, and without respecting who he is and, and who he is as a person. And I think that's unfortunate. But that's the world we live in, and it's only gotten worse, and that's not the point of this segment. So uh, Murphy talked about how Mets fans supported him and understood, despite his mistakes, what his intentions were and his desire to get better. And he, you know, basically said, I'm not the perfect player, you know, but Mets fans support helped fuel me. And we don't get that often today. And I wonder if Murphy was around today coming up and how poorly he performed in the outfield when he looked like he was on skates back in 2009 and he didn't have a great season. They put him at first base eventually when Delgado went down and he had an okay season, but he was a below league average hitter. And then here's an ironic thing about Murphy. Murphy probably never makes it to the 2015 postseason as a Met because I don't think they ever intended on resigning him. When, you know, the Mets needed hitters, they needed players, and he was affordable. And I think that's what kept him around because they were in baseball purgatory because it made off. But if he doesn't get sent down in 2010 out of spring training, Jacob Mike Jacobs was on the roster to play first. Murphy goes down to learn second in spring training. And he blows out his knee in the minor leagues and I think it tears his ACL or something. And if he doesn't blow out his knee in a collision at second base and he's in the minors when it happens, so he's not on a big league roster. So he doesn't get the service time that's necessary. He's a free agent a year earlier. They might let him walk after 2014. Murphy's not even on the 2015 Mets. And you look at him, you know, throughout his Mets career, 110, 105 OPS plus, about a seven, uh, 70 OPS, you know, 12 to 14 home runs, about 75 RBI. And he did get better in the second half of 2015. But nothing was a harbinger of things to come of when he became one of the best hitters in baseball over a two-year period with the Nats post-2015 playoffs. And then really what did Murphy in, and he might have had a five- or six-year run if he didn't have a very serious knee injury, I think he had microfracture surgery, if I'm not mistaken. A very serious knee injury. And once your lower half goes, I mean, that pretty much is the end of the game for you on a baseball field. You could still com- contribute, but not at the level that you're accustomed. Now, what I said earlier, what, what can we learn from Murphy? So everything that analytics tells you or everything that was the facts in front of you, let's not just blame analytics. All the facts in front of you said that Murphy was the best he could be in 2015. He was never going to get any better. That was a small sample size outlier, albeit against the best of the best. Some of the best pitchers of the game, like a Clayton Kershaw and a John Lester and guys like that. You know, Jake Arrieta, he's he's hitting the ball over the yard against these guys, Cy Young winners and whatnot. So, you know, threw that to the side, small sample size, small sample size. Guy can't play defense. He's 30 years old. He's never going to get any better. You know what you're going to get. 12 to 15 home runs, a 770 OPS. He plays a lousy second base, made a big error in the World Series, blah, blah, blah. But those are all true. 
And I was supportive of it when they were going out and trying to get Ben Zobrist. I'm like, ah, put, put Murphy to the side. And then ultimately, it seems like it came down to signing Cespedes or Murphy. We all know at that point who'd you pick, who'd you, who you would pick. I mean, pick Cespedes, right? Because how dynamic he was. But in the end, Murphy was the better play. And who knows? I mean, it would have been great to have both, but I don't think the Mets financially could have afforded both. And you look at Murphy going over and having a better two- or three-year run because Cespedes was hurt. I mean, Cespedes had a great 2016, but that was it. You know, Murph going out there, hitting 25 home runs, driving 100 runs, hitting 347, and finishing second in the MVP with Washington, just goes to show you that if the Mets had taken a step back and really assessed, as you hear Murphy talk about the changes he made and how he unlocked that aha moment and maybe spoke a little bit to their coaches... And maybe that was what it came down to. They didn't think they could afford both. Think about it. If they didn't, if Cespedes didn't land to them that offseason, they would have lost both Murphy and Cespedes, and they replaced it with Neil Walker. Now, Neil Walker, from a statistical standpoint, pretty much similar to that point, better defensively. And I was all about, hey, Murph can't play defense. He can't turn the double play. Those were all things that plagued him at second base. Really, if you wanted to be fair... Murphy should have been signed with the notion that David Wright has a pretty serious injury and you got a nice seven weeks out of him. Now, did you think he would fall off the cliff in 2016? No, but anybody who knows a thing or two about stenosis should have, and, and we've had people who called in the show, fans who have the, the, the injury, who told me back then, hey, Mike, this guy ain't going to last. I mean, David Wright didn't even last until June 1st the following year and his career was over. Murphy could have easily played third base. He was much more versatile than people give him credit for. So the real lesson is this. Sometimes we have all the numbers, we have all the history, we have everything in front of us that tells us what a decision and how obvious a decision should be. And we think we got it all figured out because it's all there in front of us and we run with it. But the real key here is understanding the human element, which is a scary thing because you and I both know that there is... No formula sometimes for gut and feel. And you can't run your entire organization with gut and feel. You have to have some foundational principles and data and history. And like I always tell you on this show, pay attention to history. You'll probably learn a little bit because it'll repeat itself and it'll give you a clue as to how things will be going forward. But not all the time. Because also part of history is understanding people and understanding that people can change and they can develop. And if anybody was paying attention to Murphy... He was starting to come around later in that year, in September, before the postseason. And if you even go, and I'll bring the splits up right here in 2015, even go to the second half of 2015, uh, Daniel Murphy had an 803 OPS and hit nine home runs. It hit 284. And in September, October, August, September, October, he was in the 850 range. He was starting to show you his OPS was ticking up into the 120, 130. His OPS plus. And he was starting to show you that he was trending towards that direction. And that's, you know, 50 plus game period. Now, I wasn't around in that clubhouse and I didn't, you know, who knows what Sandy Alderson, how he consulted with Kevin Long or anybody else. But makes you wonder, you know, everybody loves Terry Collins. Where was Terry Collins? You know, those are his guys, right? Did he give his opinion on things? It makes you wonder. We all said it made sense. Go after Ben Zobris, you know, better offensive player. Murphy's hit his peak. 
Thank you, Murphy, who carried them to the World Series. I mean, think about it. Murphy was the, there was the pitchers, Familia, and Murphy. And you had a little bit of Duda, a little bit of Grandison, a little bit of right here and there. But the offense was Murphy. No Murphy, no World Series. He was Babe Ruth for a week. I got it right up there on my um, studio wall. The Sports Illustrated, the Amazing Murph, hanging right up there. You know, when you make the wall here in the Talking Mets podcast, you did something. Maybe you weren't a champion, but you had a significant impact on the Mets. That's what I like to put up here. I have my Knicks wall to the right, a much smaller wall. But three quarters of this is my Mets wall. My retired numbers, all that stuff. And Murph is up there because Murph earned it. And shame on me for not believing in him. And make sure, you know, it, it, to me, letting Murphy on a three-year, $36 million deal walk to Washington was the difference between the Mets and the Nats over the next couple of years after that. It might have been different with Murphy over in Flushing. Who knows? So one of the things that David Stearns can learn is that, and maybe this applies to Pete Alonso. You want to poke holes in Alonzo's game? Yeah, he hits for power. He has some Kingman-esque type of stretches. You know, maybe he'll never be better defensively. He is a first baseman. He's a right-handed batter. He's getting into this, you know, mid-prime, you know, right-handed batters as they go north of 30, especially if you get a seven or eight-year deal. God only knows what they look like north of 35. But what does Pete mean for the clubhouse? What does Pete mean for the fans? What does Pete mean for the offense in general? How many guys could go out there and hit 45 to 50 home runs and sometimes make it look easy? And yeah, it's your due diligence. It's your prerogative to go out there and shop them and find out if you could get a Herschel Walker type of package for Pete. That's Stern's prerogative. But I'll tell you what, he's already 0 for 1 in my book with Buck. But that's nothing compared to one of the first things he does is send Alonzo away for a bunch of prospects. Because as you've seen with prospects, as we've gone through the second half of this season... Sometimes those 900 OPSs in uh, the International League or the Eastern League don't necessarily translate at the big league level. The game is faster. The pitchers are better. Even the bad pitchers are better. You know, the guys you face, the, the scrubbinis that come out of the bullpen, maybe those are the guys you face all the time in AAA. You're only going to face them once in a while in the big leagues. The game is fast. Look at Brett Beatty, how he's learning that. So I think there's a lot to learn about Daniel Murphy. It was nice. For a couple of minutes reminiscing about better days in the past. Um, and we'll see, you know, what's next for the Mets and the Talking Mets podcast. Well, I'm still going to be coming to you. Stern's press conference tomorrow at noon. I'm probably going to take about 24 hours to digest it. And then come to you sometime maybe like Tuesday night. That's my feeling. And, and then we'll get back on some kind of schedule. I have a very fun segment that I'm planning on doing. Next week, I'm going to keep that one a secret. It's a, a segment that some of you have requested. And we're going to start to dive into the offseason next week. And what we usually do in October is we start to like think about some ideas. Like Maybe we don't put together what the plan is, and maybe we'll hear a little bit about that from Stearns tomorrow. Hopefully hear something other than fluff. But because I'm going to tell you right now, if I come away from that press conference, I just hear about his interning for the Mets and Omar. I, I can't deal. I'm going to scream. I really will. You might just have a podcast of me screaming for, for 90 seconds. Because um, I, I, I'm not going to hear the same story over and over again in the gushing of the media. Um, But we'll start to look at some players and what the fit is for the Mets. But we really need to first learn 
is, you know, what's the focus? You know, are they going to be diving into the Japanese market? Will they be swimming in the Otani waters? Will they be looking at taking some of these prospects they acquired or the ones they have and maybe going after a Juan Soto who might be on the block? You know, San Diego looks like they might be having a, a bit of a fire sale potentially where there's some financial issues with their debt ratio over there. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. So don't worry. We're not taking any time off. And quite honestly, when have we really been able to take time off here at the Talking Bits Podcast since 2018? This is the ongoing joke. It's been five years. Yeah, last year we had a bit of a reprieve after the postseason where, you know, the Mets quickly came in and out of the wild card round. But then you had a whole rotation and all these free agents you had to address. So we were like right off the bat rebuilding the team because we wanted to get back to the promised land. So we've really never had this. Let's just take a step back. Yeah, the Mets didn't go for far as we want let's take a step back and take a blow for a couple of weeks before the hot stuff because again they got their team president they got their gm now they need a manager again they need to rebuild the rotation uh, they're gonna have to figure out the offense there's a lot of holes on this team as i said in the open there's more questions and answers on this club than at any point in the last 15 years now it's exciting because it gives you a chance to paint a whole new landscape and there's fun and there's excitement in the future hopeful future but boy, is it frustrating that we're here just 12 months after the Mets at this time last year were preparing for a wild card series against the Padres in a season where you felt you very well could be seeing a Mets team get to the World Series. Not a, 12 months later, not a place that I thought we'd be talking about. When we were talking about Correa miss, and I promise I need to stop mentioning Correa because I almost feel like that was the first sign that 2023 was going to hell in a handbag. And that turned out to be a fortuitous bounce for the Mets because now he's got plantar fasciitis and it looks like maybe the doctors knew a thing or two about a thing or two, right? So um, we'll see, but I will be with you. I will be reacting to the David Stern's press conference. My feeling is, is that will be on Tuesday. I like to give 24 hours for this stuff to marinate. You can marinate on this program a little bit. And then we're back on the rotation. I have something fun planned, hopefully, for next Sunday. We'll keep that under our hats until uh, further notice. You'll learn about that soon enough all right i want to thank everybody for joining me here as we wrap up the regular season edition of the talking mets podcast here in 2023 you could check me out all the time at the talking mets podcast.com you could send me a tweet at mike silva media and you the show on apple podcast spotify pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire if you want to interact with me mike silva talking mets podcast.com no g Mike Salat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. You can get me on Instagram, TalkingMetsNoG. And please thank the good folks over the fan side of Podcasting Network for supporting this show. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. We'll be back in a couple of days. David Stern, press conference reaction. Till then, take care, everybody.